This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Gold Rock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. So, welcome to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast by Gold Rock Capital. My name is David Ram, and I'm a partner at Goldwater Capital, the more than 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth investors in Israel and around the world. With me today is Vic Mittal, partner and portfolio manager at Glazer Capital, a hedge fund business that focuses on mergers and acquisitions, investments in the public markets with over $2 billion under management. And also in that capacity, Vic heads up the SPAC investment program at Glazer Capital called Meteora Capital. Welcome, Vic. Thank you. Appreciate it, David. Yeah, just uh, one, one small clarification there. Meteora Capital is a um, an affiliate of Glazer Capital that focuses on um, illiquid investing um, around the SPAC ecosystem. And Glazer Capital's purview is largely the public liquid trades pipes, things of that sort in the SPAC ecosystem. But, you know, it's it's been a fun ride in the SPAC market. We um, first got into the SPAC market in 2009, and we've kind of built the business up uh, over the last uh, decade plus. And it, it's been great to see how the SPAC market's evolved uh, from an investment product standpoint over the last decade. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely changed. I mean, I think maybe to kick, kickstart the process, love, to, love if you can give us a quick uh, intro to yourself personally, your backstory. Uh, and then maybe you could explain what is a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company for the audience, and then we can get into what's changed over the past 12 to 18 months or so, because a lot seemingly, seemingly has changed as well. But let's start with your, yeah. your background. Yeah, no, great question. Um, yeah, so for my background, um, I was on the sell side as a mid-market banker in Palo Alto at Raymond James uh, from 2002 to 2005. And um, was doing mid-market M&A transactions after the dot-com bubble burst in uh, the valley, and it was it was an interesting time. Saw a lot of negative enterprise value companies um, that were you know trying to be sold, burning a ton of cash, and in some way it was it was a good background for what we're doing now. In that. Um, you know, a lot of what SPACs are is just raising capital for companies. It's just an alternative form of capital raising um, by a SPAC sponsor and the underwriting banks that uh, sponsor that take out those SPACs. And so um, then I came to New York, went to B school at NYU and joined Glazer Capital. And I've been with Glazer Capital since 2005, um, went to NYU Stern. And then um, my first part of my career at Glazer Capital, the, the history of the firm's more in low-risk equity merger arbitrage. Uh, you know, around the time I joined, we expanded more into credit event trading, um, doing some cap structure trading, convertible arbitrage was something that we, you know, made a bigger push into. More of kind of a diversified market neutral presence. And then around the financial crisis, we saw this product called SPACs. And we're like, what is this weird, you know, thing? This blind pool, blank shell things, and they all started trading at huge discounts to cash and trust. Um, we had some companies that we were lenders to get approached by SPACs, and we're like, oh, this is an interesting asymmetric payoff profile opportunity. Hmm. And so that's kind of how we started getting into SPACs in 2009 at Glazer Capital, and we've kind of grown the business since then. 
Um, I've had primary responsibility for our SPAC efforts and managing those relationships across the street. And we've kind of built the business nicely over the last decade. And, uh, you know, we're at the point now we're one of the world's largest public holders of SPACs. Um, we play select pipes. Uh, you know, we do the deep due diligence that's required to get comfortable on some of these financial models and projections. And then in 2016, uh, we started sponsoring SPACs um, where we'd be a, a co-partner with sponsors that would raise these blind, uh, that would raise um, SPACs and invest in their risk pools and then help them with their deal work, um, help them with the capital markets exercise, navigating that gauntlet. So, so just taking a step back for a second, you mentioned, uh, you know, SPAC uh, is essentially a mechanism for a company to raise capital. That's basically what it is, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, so a company can raise private capital, it can go public through an IPO, or it can go through this blank check, as they call it, uh, SPAC approach, uh, and do a reverse merger into the uh, into the sponsor. Uh, and typically, as far as, I, as I as far as I recall, a SPAC raises money and it has a certain period of time in order to transact one company, and that. And that basically means that the stock trades at something in the neighborhood of $10 per share always. Maybe there's a discount, maybe there's a premium if there's excitement, but basically about $10 per share until they identify that target. And then that new target reverses back into that company, uh, the SPAC itself, and then becomes public through that um, that blank check company. Um, so it's been a boom in 2020 uh, and 2021. I mean, as far as I recall, you, as you mentioned, 2009 was your starting year. Um, you know, it's 40, 50 a year, typically, historically. Last year, there was 500. This year, there's already been like 300 or 400 SPACs or something like that in 2021 alone, while the IPO market has about 170 or so IPOs, which is also, by the way, an amazing IPO year in general. But the SPAC market is blown up. And in Israel, you know, we're, I'm based in Israel, as you know, in Israel, has seen an enormous amount of wealth creation over the past uh, uh, 18 months or so. Com- companies like Iron Source and WeWork, Tabula, Pioneers, a whole long list of companies that have decided to raise capital through the SPAC mechanism. So how is SPACs different than an IPO? And is an IPO better, worse than a SPAC? Does it matter? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, there are distinct differences. I think the main commonality is that SPACs um, are a form of raising capital, no different than a traditional IPO. Um, SPACs offer some advantages and disadvantages. Certainly there's disadvantages. Let's start with the disadvantages. They're fairly dilutive instruments um, to the operating business that's going public in the sense that there's the founder shares, there's the private placement warrants, there's the public warrants, there's the transaction expenses that you know, tend to reduce the amount of cash per share issued to somewhere potentially in the six to seven, uh, six to seven dollar range mm-hmm. um, relative to an IPO, which is you're paying banks five to seven percent underwriting fees on the capital raised. So a SPACs, you know, if not done properly, they could end up being the the dilution factor from a SPAC could be upwards of seven, eight percent of the pro forma cap table. Now there's been some innovations in the market that Morgan Stanley with their sale model, Evercore has something caps model um, that the promote is only earned upon a successful transaction in the stock trading over 10. Whereas um, 90 some odd percent of SPACs don't hold me that figure are the more traditional structure where the sponsor um, 
for completing the IPO gets a 25% promote of the capital raised in founder shares. Wow. And they purchase private placement warrants um, for a dollar or a dollar fifty to fund um, the working capital to pay the underwriters and things like that. And then the public are issued warrants. Um, you know, some of those dilutive features are coming out with these new structures and also forfeitures and other things. And what we're also seeing is sponsors deferring their underwriting, uh, excuse me, their founder shares into earnouts that are tied on share price performance, which is really the right metric that you do a good deal. And we're seeing some of the top tier sponsors do that, like Michael Klein recently with the Lucid transaction, he agreed to a, a three-year lockup. Uh, Goldman Sachs yesterday, Actually, I'm not sure when Michael Klein's lockup is, but he, he agreed to a fairly long lockup on his transaction for Lucid. Uh, yesterday, uh, Goldman Sachs' back GSAH announced a transaction for Mirion, um, a measure testing and measurement business. Uh, they converted most, if not all, of their sponsor promote, their founder shares, into an earnout structure that vested higher prices. And they put $200 million of their own capital into a $900 million pipe and then backstop redemptions with 125 million commitment there. Uh, Toma Bravo on their SPAC for Iron Source, which is closing soon. They have a large backstop as well. So I think that's the true sponsorship you're seeing out of SPACs that I think gives it an advantage right. against and I, an IPO. What you're saying is that there's a lot of SPACs uh, that essentially are incentivized to close a deal. They get compensated significantly on closing that deal. And if they restructure it a little bit like you're suggesting, they could actually not only be incentivized to close the deal, which is not enough, but actually to generate value for the shareholders of the of that underlying company. So if they go to IPO at $10 per share, like they typically do, you got to make sure you're actually generating shareholder value above and beyond that $10 to, to realize most or, or all or whatever may be of that, of that upside. Is that the idea? Exactly. And uh, yeah, you nailed it on the head. And I think that's a very healthy development in the SPAC market, because I think that goes back to your question of the four or 500 SPACs that were raised yeah. in the last six to nine month period. I think that the unfortunate reality is um, a large percentage of those SPACs should not have been raised because they were raised by individuals by and large that, you know, really don't have the... Um, the operational fortitude or pedigree and the capital base to truly sponsor and underwrite a company going public. And I think that's why you're seeing some of the negative reaction in the marketplace mm -hmm. when these transactions are sold off projections and things of that sort that are, you know, highly dubious in many respects. And, um, you know, it's an unfortunate and we'll see what happens. I mean, there is one school of thought that a decent percentage of the SPACs that were raised in the last six months will end up liquidating because they're not able to attract quality targets or they end up doing transactions with very low quality companies that are not able to raise an institutional pipe. But what you are seeing, and this is, I think, you know, my opinion, obviously I'm biased as, um, you know, a big believer in the SPAC product and someone who believes that it's got a permanent place in the capital formation process for private companies. And it's incredibly valuable for high quality private companies um, that are in growth mode. You know, it's able to pull series C, D, E companies out of the private markets and bring them into the public markets earlier, um, which is, you know, a fantastic innovation in my opinion. It mm. just comes down to the sophistication of the investors that are underwriting these. And so the transactions that have institutional pipes led by leading firms that have done proper due diligence and you know spent the time 
to meet with management, to, um, you know, do follow-up calls, build their own models, not just, you know, look at the PowerPoint deck and make a decision. That's so much better than the traditional IPO process. Is it full private equity style due diligence? No, but it's probably private equity lighter. Site visits happening from, you know, the 20, 30 accounts that anchor a pipe? No, but, you know, when we look to anchor a pipe or play a pipe in a meaningful way, we'll spend eight to 10 hours in some fashion with management, expert network calls, follow up with the bankers. And right. they're very thoughtful, in-depth discussions. And we're able to come to our own view of the financial model that you just don't get in a traditional IPO when you know you get access to a net roadshow and maybe a, a bank model and 20 minutes on the phone with a junior desk analyst, hmm. and then the thing prices. And I think from a private company standpoint, um, you get the S1. You get, you, get the, you get the filings, though. You get huge. Yeah, yeah. But the S1, if you look at how long an S1 is versus an S4, it's a fraction of the size. Mm. And and it's just the engagement with management in the company. It's done over a two to six week period, typically on a SPAC transaction, versus an IPO roadshow process is usually two weeks or less, and it's usually one day for most investors. Right. And. I think, you know, for on the Meteora side of the business and when we work with sponsors on SPACs and we're talking to operating companies and in the boardroom with those companies, they really value the confidentiality and the pricing exercise that a SPAC provides where you can raise a large quantum of capital through the pipe process. You don't have as much public pricing uncertainty as a traditional IPO where you just don't know where the market's going to be. Right. And that happens on the, you know, that can happen on the embarrassing side where if a deal needs a recut, you never want that as a traditional IPO because it probably kills your viability to do it if the bankers bring it out the wrong price. And then on the flip side, you saw stuff at late Q4 where Roblox, Affirm, Airbnb, I mean, that was just disastrous pricing where so much value was left on the table. It was transferred from the legacy owners of the business, employees, founders, to public market guys who got great IPO allocations. And, you know, like I I would suggest, uh, you know, listeners follow Bill Gurley on Twitter. He's got really... uh, Benchmark guy? Yeah, the benchmark uh, GP. And, you know, he's one of the more thoughtful investors that understands the full continuum of um, mm. going public, just given he's taken so many generational companies public in his uh, storied career. And, you know, I, I, he's, he understands that how much value is being transferred and how demoralizing that is to employees mm. and others. When you see Airbnb trade up hundred percent day one, a SPAC eliminates a lot of that. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a negotiated pricing exercise where, the target company's management and board picks the investors who will play their pipe process. And those tend to be investors that want to be with the company for the longer term. And the flipping is less, less prevalent than you see in a traditional IPO, in my opinion. And so that's why a Mm. lot of private companies are looking to a SPAC. And then if you've got a SPAC that say a two, 300 million raise, and it does a three, $4 billion deal. If you think about it, the dilutive features on that for every hundred million raise, if there's a 25% promote, that's two and a half million shares. So let's ignore the warrants. That's seven and a half million founder shares, or let's say it's a 200 million raise. That's 5 million founder shares. If you do a $3 billion deal, 300 million shares, 5 million founder shares against 300 million, it's a small dilutive factor. What's that number? It's like one and a half to 1.75% or so. 
So of the overall cap table, mm-hmm. that's not terrible dilution when you do it the right way. But at the end of the day, what 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 has changed? I mean, just just maybe just like in a sentence or two, what, you know, you've been involved for over a decade in this market where there's 40, 50 a year and suddenly there's an explosion and not only an explosion in transactions and, and maybe some of them are less quality than others, but also the valuations of these SPACs are enormous. What has changed? Is it just because Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are involved and it's not only smaller outfits? Was it a regulatory move? What exactly has shifted in order to enable this explosion in the SPAC market? So what you've seen is that from that period since I got into it from 2009 to 2017, no deals had pipes. And interestingly, the Hmm. first transaction that had a pipe was Haymaker, which was sponsored by Mistral Equity. And for full disclosure, um, the SVP on their three SPACs, Joe Tonis, uh, joined my organization at Meteora Capital um, in February of this year to help run our sponsor engagement business. So the Gorse Group was one of the first kind of builders of the institutional builders of SPACs as a form of raising capital. And I believe they've raised 13 SPACs that I think they've had 10 or so successful business combinations, some great transactions like Furtive. It was a spin out from Emerson Electric that they um, ended up taking public probably two or three years ago. And so, but going back to Haymaker in 2018, they took one spa world. It was a destination cruise ship um, health and wellness operator at resorts and cruise ships. It was the first back to have an institutional pipe all the way back in 2018. Think about that. First back to have an independent ever. pipe, not ever that I'm aware hmm. of. Yeah. And so that one, um, Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Monashi, Newberger Berman, where Charles Cantor, you know, is one of the thought leaders in the SPAC industry now. He has um, a partnership with Chin Chu on um, that SPAC franchise that provides sure. a degree of permanent capital under their new, uh, the NBOX complex. And so It was that 2018 time period that really started Hmm. opening the eyes to the larger institutional bulge bracket banks that, oh, this is a very viable form of capital raising. And, you know, it's gotten to the point now where one of the neighbors in my condo building, um, he's a senior banker at Bank of America's sponsor group. And, you know, I see him in the morning when we're going on the ferry coming into the city from Hoboken. And he's like, I wake up every morning and I've got a hundred emails from different parts of the bank talking about SPACs. And it's like, it's just the focus of everybody across where, you know, the bank he works at, um, you know, historically had not been a big player in hmm. SPACs. And it's one of the top five money center banks. And in, in so it's, it's, it sounds like maybe essentially a lot of the institutional guys like Newberger, Rubin and others are getting into the private, basically the private equity competitive market where, where they're essentially competing now with the private equity space through Specs. I mean, I, I think even Haymaker, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, did a transaction where they took a Tel Aviv stock exchange yep. company off that Tel Aviv and brought to the U.S. Mystery, mystery yeah, the mystery guys. Yeah, Stephen, Andy, Hare, and my guy Joe Tonus and Chris Bradley and their team are just you know they're superstar operators. That was a very complex deal. They carved out um, a holding uh, from an Israeli holy company company controlled by Ari Kotler and a few others, the seventh largest C-store operator in the U.S., um, Arco GPM. It was a roll-up of, you know, I think 20 different banners, 150 million plus of EBITDA, real transaction, 
Um, I remember Andy, we're, we're partners of theirs and we're investors in their risk pool um, for their SPACs, just for full disclosure. And um, I remember Andy was, uh, when they were doing that deal and closing in late December, he was having a tough time, even though it was being done at like nine, 10 times EBITDA, like not a demanding multiple for a great business. Um, it's going to see significant fuel margin uplift and a great roll-up strategy where you can acquire, you know, 30, 40 regional gas stations right. um, at six, seven times. You synergize them, you improve the convenience store experience, you get purchasing power, you know, with purchasing power, you get uh, better pricing on the SKUs. And he's like, I would have had a lot more hair if I had just done a zero revenue EV deal. And I'm like, Andy, you don't have any hair as is. What does it matter? And he's like, I know, I know. So it's, you know, and I think that was some of the madness that occurred. But, you know, that's why I hired a guy like Joe to work on my Meteora platform because um, this is hard work to do yeah. these SPAC transactions. You've got to do serious due diligence. You've got to have a serious network. You've got to do serious um, heavy lifting. And so I think a lot of the negativity that SPAC sponsors get for the, yeah. the money they make on the promote side is a bit misguided because it's just, yes, there's a lot that are just flipping transactions to the market with no sense of doing real sponsorship or underwriting work. And that part of the market, you know, will be eliminated. It's, it's already, you're already just, you're already seeing that segment of the market struggle to attract high quality private companies. And right. that's why you're seeing the bulge bracket banks in many respects to win the league shake table wars on um, the SPAC market. And yeah. so that's, um, you know, there's a real emphasis, like, you know, Morgan Stanley where Bennett Schachter works, he came from Goldman Sachs. Um, there had not been a big player in um, SPAC right. underwritings up in, until the last year or two. And it's because the bank wanted to make sure that they were only working with the best operators that have a long-term focus on building value. And so, you know, the headline risk, I think, is largely driven by there's always a few bad actors, right? And it just happened in the SPAC market. We had this craze of too many SPACs raised, and now we're seeing a normalization of it. And it's like anything in capital markets. There's always a, an so I, I, I know there's short sort of time, Vic, so I want to ask you one more question before I let you go, if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I know that uh, the SEC doesn't often uh, send out warnings, but I think it was a few months ago they sent out a warning to, to the retail market, which you mentioned the Reddit guys and the Wall Street bet guys. Um, and they sent out a warning saying, try to avoid getting sucked into buying into SPACs uh, before they identify a target, obviously, that are basically sponsored by celebrity or sponsored by uh, big names and then driving up the prices. I mean, I got an email with an SEC warning to please try to avoid these kinds of, uh, of right. Um That's very rare. Uh, our, our, our clients are in the high net worth community. A lot of the audience is in the high net worth community looking at SPACs, thinking about how to take a, take advantage or take a, be a part of that uh, trend in the market, you know, give us a one or two, uh, you know, uh, tips for the high net worth community if they're thinking about getting involved in the SPAC market and what to avoid or what to get, what to look for. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I guess the first thing would be to, uh, not as a plug, but to, to find a strong investment manager that's got a decade plus of experience in the market and sponsored a bunch of SPACs and understands how to, to look at them and look at the teams and evaluate the transactions in a serious way. Um, yeah. Hint, hint, but now <laughs> I don't know if my compliance guys will let me pitch any of our products, but, um, so, but that, no, but in all seriousness, uh, you need to, you need to do the due diligence, right? You need to understand. And I, I don't think it's fair to call like all the celebrity sponsored SPACs is like kind of like a hypey, whatever thing. There's a real place in the market 
for the late stage growth investors. Like, you know, you, you look at, you know, like Shaquille O'Neal, for example, I don't know him at all, obviously, or anything like that, but he seems to have a fantastic investing pedigree, you know, post his MBA career and has been a true businessman. And so I'm not sure what his involvement was in the Forest Road transaction or whichever one he's a board member of. But um, I think you have to look at the totality of who's on the SPAC sponsor team. Um, do they have the relevant industry pedigree? Have they been working in that industry for decades? Have they run public companies? Have they sat on the audit committee? Have, do they have like, does the private company have a qualified CFO? Has the CEO of the private company, um, you know, been somebody who can you can give capital to? Um, you know, those are the type of things you really need to focus on when you're doing the sponsor due diligence. It's almost like a fund to funds investment where you're giving your capital on a blind pool basis. You obviously retain your 10 put right as a public market investor. But, you know, but that's the due diligence we do on sponsors that we partner with. Right. right. We go through their we go through their backgrounds in great depth with them. We understand their relationships with the banks. Where will they see deal flow coming from? What private companies have they invested in that are in their Rolodex that are open to going public through their SPACs? And, you know, those are obviously things as a public market investor you may not be able to ask or see as right. readily. But, you know, you, if you look at the public filings and things of that sort, um, you get the ability to see more of that. But it, it's just it's some of that because I think, you know, there's a lot of information out there now in the age of the Internet and, right. and these forums and stuff. And so I, I think it gives the entire com continuum, including your, you know, the family offices and the high net worth community that you work with. It's, um, you know, it gives them a great opportunity to kind of synthesize a lot of information that institutional investors like us are able to do by working 16, 18 hour days and having a deep team that's focused on this. Obviously, you, most of these people have day jobs and are doing other things, but if they yeah. want to do that level of principal investing due diligence, there's a lot of good information out there that they can use as part of their research process. Right. It's, it's been a crazy ride with the whole spec, I'll tell you that. I mean, it used to be a cash plus, you know, hold my hold my cash for a little while until... Uh, I need it for something else. And now it's like a real volatile no, it's, market. It's great. That's why we're so excited about the product. You know, guys like Chamath and Neuron, when they first took Virgin Galactic public, that really opened up, I think, the eyes to the marketplace that uh, a Series C or D type investment could go public earlier. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're now seeing venture capitalists and private equity firms get in the SPAC market because they realize they need another avenue yeah. of um, capital formation. Because to some extent, late stage VC guys are getting disintermediated. That's right. you know, they were first getting disintermediated by the Tiger Globals, the D1s and stuff like that, that have started you know, really getting into the late stage growth market. And now private equity is seeing um, that it's a really good form, uh, way of um, capital formation and owning companies and creating value that way. You know, that's that's it. But look, we're excited here at Meteora Capital and Glazer Capital about the opportunity in SPACs. Um, there's a lot of them. Yes, there will be ones that do terrible deals, but you know, that's where an active management strategy and doing proper due diligence and underwriting work. You just got to do the work, honestly. Yeah. I mean, that's been my, you know, that's the only reason I've had any success in my career is just by doing the work. And so I think, uh, you know, those that do the work will be rewarded. That's great. Well, Vic, this has been great. I really appreciate your time uh, on your busy schedule and uh, let's definitely stay in touch. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast by Goldman Capital. Take care. 